0: Hello, Besyakov Denver alumna. Today, our Rosh Hashanah Shir will be divided into two parts. The first portion will be a discussion on some of the processes that can help us in our efforts to do tshuva. We're going to take a look at some things that people feel makes tshuva difficult, and we're going to see if we can come up with some direction to help us move forward in our efforts to do tshuva in Elul and on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Second portion of the Shir will be an approach to the theme, a theme of Rosh Hashanah based on the Rosh Hashanah machzer. And this comes from the teachings of my grandfather of Shimon Schwab, Zetzal. For our first portion, we're gonna take a look at a problem that comes up for anybody who's thinking sincerely, for anybody who is living um, a life, uh, a real human life, I guess you could say, and it's in response to a question, a very beautiful question from somebody, one of you wonderful ladies, who emailed and asked about um, an area that she feels is challenging and not something that's going to disappear just because Rosh Hashanah rolls around. And so I'm expanding it a little bit. into She named a specific area, a specific problem, you know, behavior or practice. And I'm going to expand it to include all the areas where... We know that Rosh Hashanah comes, we know that it's an opportunity for tshuva, but we don't necessarily know how to embrace all um, good behaviors and move away from any of the uh, negative or harmful behaviors that we may be accustomed to. And so I'd like to discuss, and this is going to be a review of the appendix last year. If you recall last year, we spoke about an authentic um, Rosh Hashanah, sincerium Sincereum Kippur, and we added a little appendix class to it, in which we talked about this very topic, we're going to review this, that many times people who are honest with themselves will say that they understand that Rosh Hashanah brings kochos with it, and Yom Kippur brings kochos and brings expectations, but that does not mean that all of their temptations and all of their um, perhaps you know negative practices are going to just be healed and improved and disappear just because of the date on the calendar and the beautiful kohos that come to the world. So to review, Rosh Hashanah is a day when we are tapping into and connecting ourselves to the state of Adam Harishon, um, when he was all knowing, as much as a human could be. He was made of light. He could see from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. He was very um, had a great clarity, um, and we're connecting ourselves to his to the state of Adam Harishon before his sin, where we have great clarity, great understanding. Rosh Hashanah is a day when we are connecting ourselves to the kingship of Hashem over ourselves and over the world. Rosh Hashanah is a day when there's a koach of shofar and um, a mitzvah of shofar. Yom Kippur, after the process of the Aser Simei Tshuva, is a day of kapara, where our averos could potentially be erased and we're heading for a beautiful Chag of Sukkot, and we we know that these are amazing powers, and we know that we want to tap into them. And today we're going to address what happens when we feel like, yes, I love all of those ideas, they're beautiful, I want to be a part of them, but I'm still going to wake up on Rosh Hashanah, or the day after Rosh Hashanah, or on Yom Kippur, or the day after Yom Kippur, and be challenged with my challenges. And so what can I do? How can I sincerely say I'll for something that I think I'm... You know, I don't, that I don't, I don't see disappearing uh, just, just like that. So I think that you could take a look at an Avera that you are having a problem with and analyze it from the perspective of whether it fits into one of these four categories. See what you think about these four categories. The categories that I um, kind of view it from is habit, lack of halacha knowledge. That's number two. Number three, a vague guilt. And number four, something that is more deeply rooted. So number one, habit. So much of what we do for, for good and for less good or for harm is because we have a habit to do it. And as you may, may remember from other discussions, the, it's not it's easier said than done, but it's true that the way that we can remove a habit is by replacing it with another habit. Habits are formed by repetition. So you can look up whether how many times, uh, how many repetitions it takes to create a habit or how many days of doing something it takes to form, to create a habit. But habits are embedded in our behavior because of the amount of um, times that we repeat them. So if we notice that the reason that we're doing something is just because we do it, because at one point we started and eventually we just go to it. It's just our go-to behavior. It's our go-to way of relating to someone. It's our go-to way of spending our time. It's our go-to, you know, it could be a nervous habit like nail biting. It could be looking at something. It could be speaking somehow to, some way to someone. When there's something that we're doing just because of the force of habit, we need to look at what's a better habit that I could put in its place. And the way that this works is we choose the other habit and we, until we're used to it, we have to kind of push ourselves to re, to do the new habit. And then we give ourselves some sort of reward. Maybe the reward is a tangible one, or maybe we spend a lot of energy thinking about how great that was and how proud we are of ourselves. And we replace a habit with a habit. So it's Of practical, it's very you know, it's more on the surface. You know, we do a certain behavior instead of that behavior, we do a different behavior until the new one is programmed in, and it's a matter of we just repeat it simply because we repeat it. The habitual repetition creates a new habit, so replacing an old habit with a new habit is the best way to. Um, to, to fix a problematic habit. So that's not easy, but it's probably easier than some of the others, especially number four. Number one was habit. Number two is lack of halachic knowledge. Sometimes we have an area that we're going to do tshuva for. We're going to say al again and again for something. And we know that we're not exactly sure how to do differently because we don't know halacha, right? So it's um, the, and this probably comes up mostly in areas where the halachos are complex, or could be more difficult, How complex and, and, you know, and many, such as Shemir Halasha, Shemir Shabbos, perhaps Taras Samishpacha. Kibbadov Aim does not have as many, but it could be difficult for people. So, areas where we just might lack knowledge of Halacha, and perhaps we think, well, as long as I don't know, then I'm not responsible, but that's not a high level um, way of, um, functioning, we know that we're going to be doing tshuva for achet shechatanu let's say belashon hara, we need to know the halachos the Chavetz Chaim says that studying halacha has a two part effect, one is it gives us information, it teaches us what's permitted and what's prohibited but the Chavetz Chaim says also it just gets you thinking about it, gets you aware of it, once we study halachos then we are in um, we are connected to the topic and it just it, it makes it puts us more into a mode of being careful. So again, the Chafetz Chaim says studying halacha has double benefit. One is it just um, alerts us to the topic, and number two, it actually gives information of what's permitted and what's prohibited. So area number two is a lack of knowledge of halacha. If we feel like we are stumbling in an area because we're really just not sure, you know, what you have to do and what you're not allowed to do. So committing to study halacha via um, a book. There is English svarim on almost all the halachos that we need to keep. Um, There are so many that are divided by like a lesson a day. There are, um, you know, um, organizations that will send an email to help us really remember to study our halacha. There's so many, it's like kind of like a simple thing that we just have to flick a switch and just say like, I'm starting to study halacha with a partner, without in some form, just to study halacha one a day, two a day, making it a small amount that's going to be maintainable. And that way we can cure the area if it's a matter of lack of knowledge of halacha. So area one was habit. Area two was lack of knowledge. Area three is, uh, I called it a vague guilt. Sometimes we, every time we do a certain thing, we feel kind of bad about it. Vaguely, we're not sure if this is really allowed. We're not sure if we're allowed to. We think we may have one time heard that a certain rav permits it. We're not sure what we heard. And what happens when we have a vague guilt, most of us do not become better and more enthusiastic about our vodas Hashem when we're feeling guilty. Most of us, when we're feeling a guilt, we become sluggish in our vodas Hashem or even rebellious a little bit. And we feel like, well, if I'm doing something bad, then... I am bad, and I don't keep mitzvot, and it's all subconscious, you know. But so if we have a vague guilt where we, every time we're doing something, if it's Shabbos, if it's halachos of the nine days, if it's halachos of, you know, what you're allowed to say about someone, or, and it's not that you don't know any halacha, it's that in this area, you're just not sure if you're doing the right thing or not. Here, the solution is figure out what exactly you're not sure about and ask a posik, ask. About this specific thing, this is not just learning a halacha a day. This is taking the thing that you've been doing and feeling kind of unsure about it and go to the posik and say, is this permitted? How do we do this? How does one separate, uh, separate items on Shabbos? How does one um, you know, clean a cleaner, cleaner surface on Shabbos? How does one, um, you know, give over information, you know, about someone for a show, finding out specifically about the thing that we are doing that's causing us this niggling feeling of unrest, finding out, is this okay? Because sometimes we'll find out that it is okay and that we don't need to feel guilty and we can move on. And sometimes we'll find out that it isn't and we'll find out a better way with clarity, a better way to do it. And we're all good people. Probably, once we know that something is wrong, we won't do it anymore. It's that in-between place where we think it might be wrong, so we're feeling kind of bad, but we're not sure if it's wrong, so we're keeping on doing it. And once we know, no, you're not allowed to, we ask a rough, so what are we allowed to do? What's the proper way? And I think that once we clarify that, we move forward. It's very liberating. So that's area number three, the area of a vague and unclarity and guilt regarding something that we're doing regularly. And that can that once we clear that up, the path of tshuva can become open to us. Area number four is the most involved area. It is requires some deeper work. It requires a readiness to be um, open minded to ourselves, and it can really sometimes be the only solution when something has been a problem, sometimes for years, um, or something's been a problem and it's been going on for a long time, and there seems to be no solution. And that is when we have an area of, let's say, either it's a breach of halacha or it's just a standard, it's it's a behavior or something that we do, say, look at, wear, eat, whatever, that is just, we're not, sh- it might be against halacha or it just might be lower than our usual way of functioning. It's not on our standards. It We disappoint ourselves when we do it because it's not along the lines of the, Um, high level life that we want to be living. It's not along the lines, it's not uh, up to our own standards and hopes and expectations for ourselves. And we disappoint ourselves because we see ourselves in in other um, related areas, practicing high levels, keeping halacha, keeping um, high levels of high standards. And in this area, we find ourselves stumbling and we're like, even not sure exactly ourselves, why is this such a challenge for me? But we keep repeating or we have repeated, even if it's once a year or if it's every day, but it's something that we know we feel bad about. And this requires some deeper work. This requires a little bit of introspection where we sit and ask ourselves, this thing that I'm doing, what is it that I, on some level, believe this is giving me, this is doing for me? You see, because here's the truth. We are all good people. We all have a pure neshama that wants to be connected to Hashem, that wants to function on a high level, that wants to do right. But we also are people that have an ego, that have a Yetzir whatever you want to call it, however you want to frame it, that gives us the idea that we kind of like need to live in survival mode, that we need to do things or else. And these ideas get set up, you know, when we're younger and we don't really know how to live life and we don't really know how to um, solve problems and we don't really know what we want, we're, these things could get set up at an extremely young age where we don't have tools and we have real needs that our ego wants us to solve with fake solutions. So to reference Michelle and that you've heard of in your life, you know, you have a princess who's married to a, you know, a peasant and he doesn't understand. He wants, she would like to be invited to a banquet and he makes her a ham sandwich. And she's so disappointed because it's not her, her cuisine. So the soul is high level and the ego tries to solve the soul's desires with low level solutions or, you know, the, the concept that you've heard of, of like taking a square peg and trying to fit it into a round hole or the other way, vice versa. The idea of feeding wrong foods to, to solve a hunger, the idea of somebody who's hungry. So they poke around in the trash and they take out, you know, poisonous food or garbage or whatever, and it's not solving the problem. So the idea is that we have a soul with very legitimate desires. And those desires, you could think about what they might be. The desires are to be connected, to feel connected connected to ourselves as a soul, to feel our soul's connection to Hashem, to feel a connection to other people, to feel a connection to purpose, to feel accomplished and not uh, to, and to feel stimulated and and alert to feel alive right All of those are forms of connection. A person wants connection a human soul, a human being wants connection. The ultimate fear is being alone alone in one way or another and the truth is that we are never alone and the truth is that there's always a connection but we live in a world of Hashem's hiddenness and we don't always feel connected to our purpose, to the fact that we are a soul. So when we think about some of the things that we do, if we go back, 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 what do I think this is giving me? What do I think this is giving me down to its core? It's always to feed a real and legitimate need, a good need. I was teased teaching about this with my students in high school. And before I said this last sentence, they said, oh, so if it's a bad need, then, you know, I said, no, there's no bad need. All the needs, the true needs of the soul are good needs. The connection, the feeling of purpose, the feeling of accomplishment, those are all legitimate and positive needs of the soul. However, we don't always know how to fulfill them. So we get into behaviors that are, let's say, numbing. They numb us. Because there's a pain that we can't deal with. Or they fill us temporarily. They entertain us because there's a boredom that we're dealing with. Or they make us feel connected because we feel lost. Or they fulfill an emptiness. Or they always are trying to fill something. So when we see ourselves um, doing something that we really wish we weren't doing, if we're willing to sit quietly and look inside we can always find, sometimes it takes the help of somebody else. Um, and by the way, I should mention that more on this topic, I really wanted to mention this at the beginning, more on this topic can be found in many works. One of the works is rabbits and Miriam Castle's work, Inner Torah. And um, so sometimes with our, just sitting by ourselves, and sometimes with the help of somebody else, a person can look inside and figure out what is the need of the soul that this is real. trying to fulfill and unsuccessfully so. And once we can realize that at a certain point in our lives, we got the idea that this is the way to take care of ourselves. Now we are older and we all have more tools and we can all think about what do I really need and how can I give it to myself rather than trying to feed it in a, in a uh, artificial unhelpful way or asking other people to take care of me. Um, we can try to figure out the, the real need that this is addressing and, um, and address it in, in a much more helpful way. This might sound overwhelming if it's the first time that somebody's hearing about it. I'm used to the idea that there's always a reason for everything that we do, and kind of explain to ourselves, we can kind of um, figure out what is the misunderstanding that got stuck in there somewhere about why we, um, we think we need something that we really don't need, that we know is harming us, that's causing us distress, that might be causing disruption in our lives, that might be harming our relationships. Um, and once we can figure out what is this false perception of, of, of need, we can actually figure out Um, really comes back around to the original original topic of habit, where we can find a replacement, a better solution. So this is something that I encourage people to explore, um, the idea of understanding the roots of our shortcomings, understanding that we all want to be good. We all have a, a part of us that understands Hashem Melech, this world is the temporary world, the next one is the real world, no pleasure in this world is worth anything compared to the pleasure in the next world, all those truths. There's a part of us that knows all of that, and yet we all sometimes disappoint ourselves. We all sometimes fall short, and it can be helpful to look at areas that are um, coming up again and again that challenge us and understand, try to get to the root of what is the mistaken understanding that leads us to think that we need to do that part of applying ourselves to the work of Rosh Hashanah, of throwing ourselves full, wholeheartedly, placing ourselves from head to toe, not half and half, but our whole selves into the avoda of a Rosh Hashanah, of a Yom Kippur, is having the ability to picture and imagine and envision a better us. And it can't really be done so well if there's a part of us that still thinks that we need to do these kind of survival mode things where we're still doing like Uh, unhelpful solutions. I call the solutions in quotes, but part of the part of us that thinks that we need to be doing this and that to get our needs fulfilled, um, that we can bring that part on board when we are able to look at the underlying roots. And you see, on Rosh Hashanah, we begin the Yom Tov. We begin. We after we have the Ma'ariv of Rosh Hashanah, we sit down to a Suda and we start the Suda with simanim. Right? We eat apple and honey. We eat fish. Uh, you know, head of a fish. We we bring eat eat and take into ourselves symbolic foods that demonstrate that we can picture that we can imagine. We're making it like tangible. Our hopefulness, our trust in our ability to get. Um, to move forward, to reach higher. If we would just um, think that a person is what they are, and I'm, I'm just, you know, stuck in my ways, and there's just no hope for the future. And hopefully, Hashem will ignore what I've done. You know, if that's what we're thinking, we are not tapping into the power of Rosh Hashanah. When we sit down and we actually eat those foods and we point at them and we say we're doing something tangible to kind of make it real to ourselves, picturing ourselves in a better way imagining, setting our intentions, um, taking a a moment to, to make an image in our mind of the best version of ourselves. Instead of just thinking like, well, you know, I hope for the best, but probably the worst, you know, or some pessimistic attitude. Let's think I have the potential to be much, much better. Yes, me, little me, not just the tzaddikim and not just all the other people, but the person that I am, that Hashem knows is filled with challenges and filled with limitations and has all these... Um, shortcomings this person has the ability to reach much, much higher if she 's sincere at looking at herself and her relationships and her practices, and those 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 things that we do the tangible the foods that we eat are to show us that we need to picture and invest in our imagine in our and our in our image of a better future so that we can make it real for ourselves, and so that completes the portion on the topic of being sincere and looking inward when we're trying to do tshuva and seeing if those four um, explanations of what stops us from doing tshuva and those four solutions, seeing if they can help us feel like we're more on board and more wholehearted in our crowning of Hashem on Rosh Hashanah and our asking for kapara on Yom Kippur. And for the next few minutes, I would like to just share a Dvar an approach to the Rosh Hashanah Machser, an approach to a more, a less typical theme of the day of Rosh Hashanah. This is based on the teachings of my grandfather of Shemeshwab Zatzal in a speech that he made for the, that he gave to the women of his community. In that shir, he said that you could call Rosh Hashanah Mother's Day or Motherhood Day. How so? Well, first of all, the most of the words that describe time, like zman, yom, shavua, and chodesh, are all in zahar, in the male form, while shana, the year, is in female, in Nikeva form, as though the year is like the mother of time. And so he says that the year has something. Re, the, the word shana and Rosh Hashanah have something to do with the female um, species, the female people. Um, also, he points out that there are six mothers that are either mentioned directly in the machzer itself or referenced by the Rosh Hashanah um, mitzvah of Shofar. So he says, first, Yom Aleph, on the first day, the Kriya Satora, as we know, discusses Sarah, our first mother, and the story of how she had a baby. She was remembered on Rosh Hashanah to have a baby at the age of 90 and how eventually she knew that she needed to have Avram drive away Hagar and Ishmael. That's the Kriya of day one. Um, the second mother, Rifka, is not mentioned directly in any of the Torah readings, but she is referenced in the way that the words of the Birkas. Kriyas are rearranged, and a typical Shabbos davening, the ber- brachos of the Kriyas say Befi Yisharim Tis Halal, Oved Tzadikim Tis Barach, etc. And if you take a look at the Rosh Hashanah Machser, on both days in Shachris, the letters, the words are rearranged so that it's Befi Yisharim Tis Romam, over Tzadikim Tis and Chasidim. T- And if you look in your machsar, it's probably bolded to show you the names Rivka and Yitzchak. Something about that part of the davening wants to bring our attention to Rivka and Yitzchak. So mother number one, Sarah. Mother number two, Rivka. Mother number three that Rav Schwab mentions is Rachel. Rachel Imenu in the Haftarah of the second day. Some of you may remember learning Yermio, Paraklamet Aleph, Rachel, Mevaka Albaneha, how our mother Rachel is crying for the children that are exiled and are being sent out on the path to Bavel. And that's Rachel Imenu, the beautiful Haftarah of, 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 of um, Paraklamet Aleph and your Mother number four, Haftarah of the first day, Chana. Nechana hi Chana, the mother of Shmuel, how she asked Hashem for a child. We mentioned this in last year's year. Chana, who went sincerely to ask Hashem to bless her with a child, so she could bring him to serve Hashem, and how we learn from her the halachos of davening. Mother number five, very different mother, Hagar. Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. She's mentioned as well in the Haftarah of, sorry, in the kriah. Kriya Torah of the first day with Sarah. Hagar, how she goes out into the wilderness with her son, Yishmael. He's dying. She casts him under a bush, and she doesn't want to see him dying. And that's Hagar. And then we have the sixth mother, who is not mentioned directly in the tefillah. But relating to the way that we blow shofar, we study Aim Sisra in Sefer Shoftim. Her cries and moans when she saw that her son was not returning from trying to destroy the Jews, um, that, that situation where she was sitting and crying by the window gives us the instructions for how we blow shofar, interestingly. So now we have six women different from each other. Some of them are our foremothers and some of them are mothers of some of our enemies, Hagar and Im and what Rav Schwab does is he looks at each of these stories and he shows how there's a a Rosh Hashanah message in each of these women's stories. Some of them are apparent, such as Davening or Yitzhak's birth. Some of them we can see the connection to Rosh Hashanah. Some of them we need a little explanation. And I'm going to kind of take the whole topic of the fact that mothers are a focus of Rosh Hashanah. And I'm going to suggest just a smaller lesson, not one by one like Rav Schwab does, but I'm just going to explain. Um, I'm going to suggest something that may resonate with us women. Many things are happening on Rosh Hashanah. We are crowning Hashem. We are doing the mitzvah of shofar. We are davening for a new year. Many things are happening on Rosh Hashanah. And it can be helpful to realize that the trait of compassion that is a specialty of motherhood, the way that mothers bring love into the world, the way that A mother is a source of rachmanus on her children and that a mother, among other things, is a symbol of compassion, can remind us that when we are feeling the the din, perhaps we realize that the world, we don't know what's next and we don't really know what just happened actually, right? We're not, well, everyone's kind of um, in some level of unsureness. Um, and we know that din is a very serious thing, and we may be overwhelmed. We may even be shut down because din could overwhelm us. We, can, we need to remember that Hashem loves every person. Hashem loves every Jew. Hashem actually loves the world with more love than a human could love their child. And when we're just thinking about mothers of all sorts, it's a good way to remind ourselves that when we feel the open hearted feeling toward the people that we love, it can remind us that Hashem, while being the judge of the world and while being the Melach Yoshe Valkisei Din, he also has endless compassion for us. And we can appeal to his compassion and appeal to. His belief in us, Emunah Secha, that we mention every morning when we wake up, we can appeal to Hashem's belief in our ability to keep climbing higher. We can believe in our own ability to keep climbing higher. We can have compassion on ourselves, have compassion on the people around us, sort of soften our approach to other people and soften our approach to others. And then we can get ourselves into a state of mind in which we can do the work of Rosh Hashanah and do the work of Yom Kippur wholeheartedly with a feeling that Hashem wants the good for the world. He's always doing for us the best thing for us in the gentlest way possible. And we can really have a sincere connection to the davening and to the people around us as we are doing the work of Rosh Hashanah. We can remind ourselves of Hashem's endless mercy and compassion, which we are relying upon. And we can be hopeful and optimistic to have a beautiful New Year, with everything good for ourselves, for the world, for all of our hopes and dreams coming true. I wish you and all of us a k'siva v'chasimatova, a beautiful, fulfilling Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and a bright New Year for the whole world, for all of us, with everything good coming true, with Hashem's light shining in the world brightly. Thank you so much for listening.